City University Television presents... The American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theatre. This seminar, producing... Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, located right in the heart of Times Square, right smack in the middle where Broadway and Off-Broadway and Off-Off-Broadway all come together to present the wonderful world of live theatre, the magic, the excitement, and the culture that comes from seeing theatre. Only, only live theater can do this for you. From here, we go out to all across the country. And from across the country, from the regional theaters, they bring their fine fare to New York in order to nurture the New York theater. The American Theater Wing is founder of the Antoinette Perry Tony Awards. But this is only a part of it. And the story behind the Tony Awards is a good one. It was named in honor of Antoinette Perry, a producer, an actress, and a director, who believed very, very importantly to the world of theater was training and the exchange of knowledge. And the award is not given for the longest run or the best box office, but for the achievement of excellence in the craft of theater. The American Theatre Wing continues to do that. And during the past 50 years, it has continued to bring theatre to the community through the theatre. We start with the lowest, youngest children, and we bring professional theatre into public schools, elementary school age. Children line up to see live theatre on Saturday mornings. And then we go to the other end of high school students, in cooperation with the Board of Education of the high schools and the wonderful Broadway producers, we're able to give tickets at a minimum price to high school students. And some tens of thousands of these children have come to Broadway to see perhaps their first Broadway show. And as a special bonus, the wing has asked the performers and the stage manager to meet with them afterwards, which they do, so that there is a role model for these children. It's an exciting and wonderful program. And each season, more and more of the fine theaters provide entertainment for us and that first experience. In between, there's a hospital program, and theater goes out under the auspices of the American Theater Wing to hospitals and to nursing homes and to aid centers and these seminars. The seminars are geared to give you an insight, a unique view of what it is to work in the theater from the aspect of the performer, the playwright, the director, the designer, the lighter, 
the, the agent and the unions and guilds. And today's seminar is on production. All of it comes together because nothing is possible without the producers. And so today we have the producers and their team of Jelly's Last Jam, an exciting play on Broadway, an exciting musical on Broadway. And to present our panel today will be George White, who is president of Eugene O'Neill Center in Waterford, Connecticut, and Jean Darable, who is a member of the board of directors of the American Theatre Wing, and has been all of the things that we've talked about, from agent, director, producer, and just very good, knowledgeable person. I'm Isabel Stevenson, and I'm president of the American Theatre Wing, and I thank you all for being here. Uh, I'd like to start by introducing the gentleman on my right, who is Michael David, who is the general manager of Jelly's Last Jam. And on his left and my right is Pamela Koslow, who is one of the producers of Jelly's Last Jam. And on my left, I will then turn it over to Jean, who I must say is wearing a black hat today, and I'm not sure that that's an editorial comment, but we'll find out later who will introduce him. Well, I would like to begin way down there with that very lovely lady. And, you know, they have these cards so mixed up that I can't figure out what's what. Well, but I'm I Jean think Moore. you are, Margot. <laughs> no, I'm that's, Jean. That's it, you see. You <laughs> are one. Jean Ward. Yeah. You're Jean Ward. And she's the legal counsel to Jelly's Last Jam from the firm Levy, Rosenzweig, and Hyman. That's right. And I suppose they're lawyers. Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> I confess we are. <laughs> and then we have Rick Ellis of Sereno Coin, Inc., the theatrical advertising agency. Do you also do publicity? Uh, well, we do have a public relations division, but it's a uh, corporate public relations division, not uh, theatrical. Uh -huh. And uh, we're not lawyers. <laughs> oh, I wonder where the press agent is here today. Here I am, right <laughs> I'm the next one. <laughs> oh, of course. My goodness, I've been talking to you on the phone for years. And I've been talking, well... Do you yeah. mean this is a first? You finally get to meet today? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. This is great. Finally. Richard Kornberg, theatrical press representative, head of Richard Kornberg and Associates. And I'm the press agent of right. Jelly's Last Jam. I think that's a very important person in a production group. Um, um, having been one myself. Exactly. I was gonna, <laughs> thank you, Jean. I was going to add that. <laughs> and right next to me, is that right? Well, nope, it's Margot Lyon. Uh, I know that, but I can't find it. <laughs> See, I told you they were all mixed yeah. up. It was um, Marco Lyon, one of the producers of Jelly's Last Jam, and I think probably the most important from what I've heard. <laughs> well, now we can talk about that. <laughs> this is going to be a good hour and a half. <laughs> and I, would, I, and I would like 
<laughs> I would like Miss Lyon to begin with, if you had the idea of doing this production and how you got it and how it began. Well, actually, I was a co-producing director of a non-profit organization called Music Theater Group with a wonderful woman called Lynn Austin. And we were developing new works for the musical theater, and I wanted to do a show that used jazz as a score, but that was about the culture from which jazz came. And so I read Alan Lomax's book, Mr. Jelly Lord, and listened to the tapes of interviews with him and decided to go ahead and try and develop that as a musical. And uh, during, when that was first taking shape, uh, I was also doing a uh, commercial production of How I Got That Story and met Pam Coslow, whose husband is Gregory Hines, and asked her if Greg would like to join us at Music Theater Group and perhaps direct, I think was our first impulse, um, uh, Jelly's Last Jam, because we were in the habit of choosing people who had not taken on a certain role in production to give them an opportunity to do that. Lynn had given Tommy Toon, for example, her first his first chance. And that's how our association began. And um, we, Lynn and I applied for a National Endowment grant to do the show. We, we received it. Uh, Greg was interested. We were going to begin. And uh, then, uh, through a series of events, I decided to go into the commercial world and um, took this project with me as it had been my idea, and Pam and I joined forces to try and develop it um, for a commercial venue. And just about at that time, I think Greg decided that he would prefer to be in, play the role of Jelly Roll, rather than to um, direct it. And there began a, I guess, a 10-year saga. And uh, it's... Uh, I think everything we ever could have dreamed it would be, and has a very happy ending. Uh, would you? Uh, what did Rocco say about that? Uh, this is a, obviously I'm tossing you a, a cue line that we talked about before, but I, I like. To, I think you should tell that story. Well, uh, Rocco was told me yesterday. Rocco Landisman. Rocco Landisman, who really has been my godfather in all of this. I mean, he really has supported my career personally and and this project specifically, and. Um, he said he was talking to someone yesterday and describing my role on the show, and he said uh, she would have done anything, including die, for this project, and in fact, she very nearly did. <laughs> so uh, I think that uh, that sort of describes it, and I think the same is true of Pam, and, and for many of the people who came on later, uh, their dedication um, has been just extraordinary because this is, has been a very, very unusual project, and we named ourselves different things during during the uh, the period of, of development, but one of them was the little engine that could, because there were a lot of people who did not believe this was going to happen. And uh, that makes the triumph that much sweeter. And Well, also, um, I had known Pam and Margo um, from that period of time when they were involved with how I got that story. Um, it's because of Jelly's Last Jam that I have my, my theatrical publicity office. Um, for a number of years, 14 to be exact, I was the spokesperson of the New York Shakespeare Festival, and I was very content working in nonprofit theater. And when, Jelly's, when Mr. Jelly Lord, which was an earlier title of this, of this hit musical, 
um, came about. Um, I was happily working for Joe Papp at the New York Shakespeare Festival. And for years, I've been following this project. And Pam and Margot called me periodically saying, are you sure you can't work on our show? Are you sure you can't work on our show? And luckily for me, um, the end of last year, or no, middle of last year, they came to me again. And I said, well, maybe I consider leaving the Shakespeare Festival. And it was, in essence, um, Pam and Margot's insistence and perseverance that um, offered me the opportunity to go from a very, very happy nonprofit um, New York Shakespeare Festival press representative to an even happier, thank God, profitable um, <laughs> Broadway and off-Broadway press representative with my own agency. I think it's important to remember here that I appreciate you saying how important I was, but very literally this show, and especially this show, would not have happened without everybody sitting here. I mean, it was, it, it, it was such a kind of different project for Broadway, and, and we, Pam and I, really dedicated ourselves to, to choosing the most talented people we knew in every area of administration and running management of the show, and and it just would not have happened without these people here. Yes, but you'll take them. Well, <laughs> well tell us about good taste. Yeah, yeah. How, how you first had these, uh, how you got involved and how you started, really, uh, bef even before uh, there was life before Jelly's Last Jam, I assume. Um, yeah, I, I had uh, done a few things, but um, I think basically I love the theater. And um, I had always felt that uh, Gregory was one of the most talented people on the live stage and that there wasn't material around that um, was uh, up to showing his talents. And uh, I always thought it would be great if I could work on something that would be a great role for him. And then uh, working on how I got that story and uh, meeting Margo and, and Margo having this idea to do um, a jazz musical, actually, is how it started. And, um, and Gregory involved in, in directing. And then, and then as, as we talked about the development of the character, he said, it sounds like, he's, Jelly sounds like a character I could really become. He wanted to have a a great character like the Music Man or Tevia, and um, you know he was in UB and Sophisticated Ladies, which were which were lovely pieces. But the main character wasn't a character that you would uh, remember or identify <coughs> with, or you could learn from or really feel from. And that's what he wanted, and that was my impetus in getting involved in the show. And then. I mean, I never realized the kind of road and the kind of experiences uh, that I would have and, and all the very talented people that we worked with along the way, several different writers, several different directors, um, all who were very talented. But, you know, it's just a question of timing. Um, not that anybody wasn't particularly right, but it's just the right people coming together at the right time and that spark igniting um, and it just didn't happen until we met George Wolfe and um, and even it took George a little while to um, 
understand the material because George is not the kind of writer who you can say, well, I want to do a show about ABC, write me ABC. He, we had to talk about it and he had to identify with something in the material that he could express himself. Mm -hmm. And um, after a lengthy period of time of talking and readings that we had and different people coming in and out, he started to get a real feel for the material. And then he began writing and the gist of the story and the feelings and the emotional impacts started to gel. And um, once we got the train going and started to bring in all the other people. Uh, it was like a, a boulder beginning to start rolling and pick up steam, and then all of a sudden it had a life of its own, and it was incredible. And when did, when did Michael come into that life? Was, were you there from the beginning, or? Oh, God, no. <laughs> all right, then tell us how you came into it. When? Uh, we, I think, tangentially, like so many others, were attracted to this piece because of what it was and because of Pam and Margo. Um, I'm a member of a little producing organization called the Dodgers, who primarily don't do or manage the work of others, but try and do the work for ourselves. Um, what does that work? Producing shows on Broadway. Um, and uh, <laughs> Pam and Margot came to us, I think, two years ago, and said that they were, I think they were eight years down the line, and they had this project, which we were, we like a number of people, I think, in the theater community were aware of. And, um, asked if we would consider working with it with them on it and I think it was both the idea of working with them and and working on something like this was compelling enough for us to say look it's not our own but we'd be happy to to work with you on it and so um, if indeed the commercial theater is a sort of synthesis of art and commerce the fact is they had art which was unbelievably attractive to us and our role then assumed organizing and coordinating the commerce end of it which began with dealing with the kind of baggage a project picks up over the eight years it took to get from when they began to when they got to us. Um, and it's, you know, that's, that's up here. And also, they, we chose them because um, <clears throat> when we made a change from general manager, we had another general manager <coughs> when we had another kind of project. This project, given the, the wonderful work the Dodgers have done, both in non-commercial and commercial, uh, theater, it, it needed it needed a management organization that understood mm -hmm. the art component, and we were able, we knew we had to come in very very trimly in terms of the budget, and when when we first met and said to the Dodgers, we have to come in at five million dollars, and that's what we have to come in at with all the baggage that we have coming along. That's it, and they made it work, and God bless them for it. Because I mean, we're going to come back to that, that. Yeah. to the money. I, I, excuse me, Isabel. I, yeah, that's that's true. I do want to because I want to get a little more clearly <laughs> yeah. uh, an indication <laughs> of what general managers do. Uh, oh, good, I do too. We can all learn here, Pam. Uh, Gene, uh, uh, the the legal aspect of that, uh, and and lawyer jokes aside for a moment. Right. Um, uh, uh, a lawyer on a production, uh, are you a traffic cop? Uh, what, what do you do? Or is that part of it? Or tell us a little bit about your function and also how you got into it. It is part of it. Uh, this project, I think probably you and, and uh, Paul Werner from our firm were on this from the start. The, the two of you, I see things in the file that even predate the current firm that I'm working in now, and that's been around for five or six years. 
and just about every lawyer in our firm has at one point taken some some aspect of this project. It was a a, a complicated before we even got to being traffic cops or anything else. It was a very complicated rights acquisition. This wasn't a project where an author came to the producers and said there were one or two or even three of us who have put together this musical. This was a situation where the producers really had an idea of how to structure the musical and then went out to build it. And that started with acquiring music rights in, in the basic Jelly Roll Morton music with the idea as it grew that that music would be adapted, there, there would be new lyrics put to songs that had old lyrics, there would be lyrics put to songs that had never had lyrics, some of the things would be switched around, and that you would then even have somebody writing, writing music to go with the original Morton uh, pieces. So that was the, the starting place, and then going out and beginning the usual process of getting rights from book writers and, and uh, new lyricists, new, new arranger composers. So it was a long and difficult project just from that point of view. But along with the normal contracts with all of the uh, components of the show, what about the Morton Estate? Did you have to work with Yes, that's where we started. Um, really going to it, the Morton Estate has a music publisher, and we dealt with that music publisher, um, who controls all of those songs, and that was that was really the beginning of putting this puzzle together. Mm -hmm. Rick at Sereno, um, you were once this was all together. Um, what did you do? Uh, that sounds simplistic, but I mean, in other words, you have a package now, and you have to um, <coughs> design something that agrees with the producers, and then the press agents come in. Tell us a little bit about that, and, and also your background, too, because there may be people here who want to get into advertising. Oh, anybody who wants to get into advertising should not do at all what I did, which was to back into it. I had no uh, formal training in advertising. Um, I happened to uh, meet Matthew Serino, a partner at Serino Coin. Uh, socially uh, at a time when I was doing some uh, freelance writing for a, a press agent to make some extra money while I was earning my living here as an actor. I was in a show down at Richard Kornberg's uh, Theater the New York Shakespeare Festival, uh, put together by one of uh, Michael David's Dodgers, uh, Des Makinoff, called uh, The Death of Von Richthofen as Witness from Earth. And at that time, uh, Maddie Serino called and said, would you come in and cover for my creative director who's away on vacation, which I did. And it turned out I had a facility for writing funny headlines. Um, and so that's how I began in advertising. Uh, it was just very seductive uh, when I met Nancy Coyne, who uh, is, uh, you know, quite a genius and wonderful person. And uh, uh, we hit it off and became uh, very friendly, and I just stayed and stayed and stayed. Because New York is my hometown, and I like working here. But enough about me. Um, Basically, what does the advertising agency do? The advertising agency hopes for a, a situation like Jelly's Last Jam, where um, the producers of the show are brave enough first to put on a production like Jelly's Last Jam, and brave enough to let George Wolfe and Susan, Birken, uh, 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 Susan Birkenhead and um, uh, Luther Henderson and uh, Gregory Hines do very exciting work. And then, not to stop there, uh, they set out to do a breakthrough musical, and then they set out to sell it in breakthrough ways. Uh, advertising is only ever as good as 
the client that you're working for because you can present an absolutely sensational idea and if nobody wants to pay for it, it never sees the light of day. So it was very exciting to us when we were given a brief to try to break through the clutter of um, more traditional theater advertising, given the restraints that theater advertising has to uh, what, take what into consideration. What is the breakthrough? Where, where do you go that's not traditional advertising? And well, what is the tradition? What, uh, yes, exactly as well. What were no. you breaking down, the, the kind of thing that you're doing? Well, the, the choices of where one advertises for the theater are, are limited, because a show can only spend so much. A show what percentage of, of your budget can you spend on advertising? Can you tell us that? Of, of the production budget? Mm -hmm. Well, weekly it's about 10%, I think. Uh, weekly, uh, yeah, well, it's about 10. yeah. 10%. 10%. 10%. 10%. 10%. 10%. 10%. 10%. 10%. 10%. 10%. 10%. 10%. 10%. 10%. 10%. 10%. 10%. 10%. 10%. 10%. 10%. 10%. 10%.
coupons, phone numbers uh, crammed in uh, because a, a school of uh, producers frequently thinks, well, if we're paying for it, we've got to put information in it. Uh, what we, what we uh, presented and what Pam and Margot were uh, brave enough to do was an ad that was very, very expensive that did not have a lot of information in it, really only that single piece of information, that it was the most nominated show on Broadway. And um, in advertising, you can shout or you can uh, speak very articulately and uh, sensibly. And this was an articulate, sensible expression of a of And, a and you felt that bought tickets or bought in ticket buyers is an advertising at the very end, the purpose is to sell tickets. Say, Absolutely. Buy well, tickets there was, of course, a response at the box office immediately. But what we also wanted to do with that ad was to begin an impression that this show was different mm -hmm. in its nature, not just different on stage, but different in the way that we were presenting it to the public. And and uh, and that became a, a, the touchstone of a, of a print campaign, which now uh, involves full-page ads run. Uh, on a certain schedule so that every time an ad appears for Jelly's Last Jam in the paper now, it will look like it's a new show with something new to say about it as opposed to the standard small space ad that most shows run on a page with nine or ten other small space ads. Um, and and that was one way that we... Uh, um, I'm yeah. sorry. No, I, 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 Richard I, wanted I, to say something. I, 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 I want to also <laughs> add one thing about the advertising. Um, what Rick uh, is not... What, what Serena Coyne <coughs> excuse me, also did was um, they, after, between the time of, oh, it, this show opened in April, and the, um, a few days after its opening were, uh, was the announcement of the different awards. It was nominated for Tony Awards, Drama Desk Awards, and such. And um, it was felt by the ad agency and Pam and Margot that they wanted to spend an inordinate amount of money um, between that time to maximize um, the, the people knowing through advertising about Jelly. They created ads, Jelly's latest news. They created ads, um, Jelly's this, Jelly's that. And it was two, three, four times a week. And we had a very short period of time to make the impact for Jelly's Last Gem that, say, <coughs> Crazy For You, which opened in January, had six months to accrue. We had, we had four weeks instead of six months mm -hmm. to, to Tony Night. And we knew that there was a chance that Jelly's Last Jam would win, and there was a chance that Jelly's Last Jam would not get the Tony for Best Musical. What we wanted to do was maximize ticket sales during the period of time when we had something that no other show could say, more nominations than any show, ergo the, the most high-quality product on Broadway. And we what had four weeks to be able to say that. As, as publicity, what was your job, uh, dude? Thank you. Um, um, well... In some respects, it's less my role. We were all always a group. And Margot and Pam, I was not the first press agent on the show. This show has had a long history. Um, as there, were, there was one, there was a different general manager, there was a different lyricist, there was different book writers, there were different, I mean, there was, it was a whole different show. Um, when I came aboard, um, it was felt by my office and the producers felt that it was very, very, very important that there should not just be a white press agent on um, a show that was speaking about racism, speaking to racism, and was a show for all people and not just one group of people. And they, through um, the ad agency, Serena Coyne, Nancy Coyne, suggested a woman named Carolyn Jones 
we, we all knew about her. But uh, I'm sorry. It, but it, it was anyway. Carolyn Jones was suggested. Carolyn Jones um, is an advertising agency, but also in Carolyn Jones's office there is a publicity division, and a woman named Flo McAfee came aboard with Carolyn, and. It was Carolyn's office and my office that did the publicity on Jelly's Last Jam. Um, Carolyn, um, Carolyn has much better contacts in the African American community. And on every press release, on everything that comes out on Jelly's Last Jam, one will note it comes from Richard Kornberg slash my associate Carol Feynman and Carolyn Jones slash Flo McAfee because we felt that if black people, white people, Latinos, whomever gets this release, that we want them to be able to go to any of us to do publicity, uh, to, to be able to respond to anybody. Um, we have had, an, um, because of this choice, the producer's choice, we have been um, featured maybe more prominently in uh, the Amsterdam News, on uh, black entertainment television, on, on everything that a regular traditional Broadway press agent may not get. Um, I'm aware... Did you go specifically for this audience? Did you try and, and with your group? Well, we, we were very... Pam and I were very dedicated to trying to expand the nature of the Broadway audience for the show. I mean, we knew it was not a traditional show. We knew that it was about African-American culture. I mean, that had been the impulse behind doing the show in the beginning. And we wanted to be inclusive in that way. And that, that took a lot of... Um, you know, we, we had to strategize because this is not the typical way of selling a, a, a show on Broadway. I mean, it, it can, you can, there are, quote, black shows. This was not a black show. This was a show that was about people, but we wanted to bring in the black audience. Let me pick and up on this a little bit, Richard, because um, one of the things that I, uh, which, because it was a, it's, it's a marvel of the job that you did, and that's where I was going earlier. Um, it came at a time when there were, other, it wasn't, Fortunately, Broadway had other hot shows going on. It wasn't the only one. So I, we've already talked with Rick, uh, mentioned about how you're trying to make it special. But of course, the, the ball was then in your court. How did you, you pick up on that? Because it's a very tough job because there were two other, no, three other shows around that were in a sense competing for attention instead of being the only one. And I would think that would have been a tough job for space and all of that, wasn't it? In, in some respects, that helped things, um, because um, the, sh the two other shows you're talking about were, and still are, is, Five Guys Named Mo, and Suddenly I've Blanked. The other one was... Two Trains, right? No, no, no. no. Um, are you talking about... I thought you were talking about no, Guys No, I'm talking about the... I know. I'm talking about Guys and Okay. Dolls. Um, what's the Great show? Oh, no, it was playing. It lasted a few days. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so we were very lucky in many respects. Um, we came to Broadway at a time when um, a number of stars were coming to Broadway. And um, it was, in addition to our star, Gregory Hines, there was um, Alec Baldwin, there was um, Richard Dreyfuss, there was Glenn Close, Glenn Close mm -hmm. Alan Alda. Alda. Um, and so therefore, we were able to <coughs> be... Jessica Lange. Jessica We were able to be focused on stars. We also came um, at a time where um, there were three hot musicals. Well, no, we didn't know that. We came when there was a time when there was three supposed black musicals and four supposed black shows, um, Two Trains being the straight play, and 
uh, five guys, uh, high rollers and jelly, being black shows. But we didn't perceive ourselves as a black show. We didn't perceive ourselves as a review. And we were lucky that with five guys and with high rollers, they were reviews. We were a real musical. Um, so we could put ourselves in that. We were musical with it. We were, of those three, we were the only one that had a star. So we stood out from that group. Um, we were also the only, um, with Guys and Dolls and with Crazy For You and Jelly, we came in that group because we were a new American musical, but we had music by a composer that was known, that a composer whose work um, in this, we created the musical to fit this man's music and to tell this man's life. But um, we also were, a, so we were able to be, in we weren't able to be, de to be compartmentalized. We were able to be, to benefit to build from on, being on all of that. <coughs> but I know Pam and Margot had a frustration, and they can talk about this, and Michael and whoever, concerning the fact that Jelly's Last Jam, unfortunately, um, got, in some respects, not the um, respect it got as a new musical. Um, it was being told in new terms, but certain very traditional people decided that um, Luther Henderson and um, Jelly Roll Morton and Susan Birkenhead did not create a new score. And because of that misperception, we feel that um, in some respects we are misperceived or... I think you've done well enough yeah. with what you've had. Right. I want to know what about you too, yeah. Michael. <laughs> All right, before we... What happens to you? When did you come into this? And, and what, what, and what, what do, do you do? do? What do you do? Yes, actually, yes. I come things you, like this. Are you a general <laughs> yes, manager? Right. Are you what is known as a general manager? That's what we do. I mean, that's right. What, what does a general manager do, Mr. Bones? Uh, I think, as I said earlier, I basically coordinate and organize the, the, the commerce, the, the, primarily the money. Uh, and that that's involves with everything been from creating the budgets um, and attempting to make sure everyone sort of lives within them. I mean, they are a structure, in fact, for, for living within this confined period of time where all sort of people are racing to sort of get from here to here. Uh, once the ball starts rolling, you there's no stopping it, and things are happening in sort of every department all at once, whether it's advertising or press or the costume shop or the set shop handle, or in the theater, whatever. Do you handle the unions of all, mm -hmm. of all the Yeah, unions. we do. And so basically, it's, a, it's, an it's very easy to, to find yourself terrific here, but when you looked away over here, they spent more than they had. And I must say, it's, it's a terrific design team of people who um, are, uh, will spend as much money as they can get their hands on. And uh, this was a show that provoked, it seems to me, as, <clears throat> as many wonderful as ideas as the Robin Wagners and Tony Leslie Jameses and Jules Fishers could come up with. And... Uh, the idea of basically running a tight ship over a period of the 12 to 16 weeks when you're basically doing this thing, and when you get to the end, you better have the money or not, or you know, whatever. You're sitting um, in on this. As well, but also, Mike, a lot of times the press agent will call the manager because, and we, uh, we were very lucky in the case that we have a star, and we got raved reviews. And because of that, um, there was a number of different publicity opportunities that um, came about from 48 hours, doing 48 hours on Broadway, and focusing on Jelly's Last Jam, 
to 60 Minutes, which is now doing a profile on Gregory Hines. And a lot of times, the unions on Broadway, and this is, I'm sure uh, you could talk for hours about this. Don't. Um, I won't. <laughs> feel that they should get paid for whenever a TV monitor, a TV crew happens to be in a theater. And we have rules governing this. And a lot of times, I would be calling Michael or one of Michael's partners, Sherman, Sherman Warner or Ed, and talk about so-and-so wants to film this in Jelly's Last Jam with so-and-so. And there, it seems as if the manager half the time is dealing with the unions, convincing the unions that at the theater, that, and I'm in a union, and I'm on the board of my union, but um, that they should allow these TV people to do publicity on a show that ultimately is going to, the publicity generated will benefit the people working on the show and, and make their jobs last longer and longer, yet they're always arguing for payment when a TV crew happens to be in the theater. How did trying. you handle that? Yes, Michael, what did you, what did you... Look, I mean, I think, I think this, is, this is one aspect of, of sort of how it works. I mean, basically, you... <laughs> you try and avoid every circumstance where they can claim to get paid. You don't stand out of the marquee when you do your interview. You stand just one step outside of it, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's what, I mean, this is a battle that is constant. And my, my hope but is that we're basically But they have certain rules in, sure. in, in, in distance of in the theater, out of the theater? Sure, in the dressing room, on stage, with lights, without lights, in costume, Give me a for instance of one or two of those. Is it more expensive in the, th in the dressing room than on stage? No, it's or more expensive on stage. More expensive and why orders. outside the marquee rather than in the... <laughs> you really don't uh, want to get into that. Aren't these good questions? <laughs> I guess I mean, it's a no, but it's, yeah, it's oh, a The fact is the jurisdiction of a stagehand, for yes, instance, right. is, it includes underneath the marquee. If you take one step away from the marquee, indeed are in the rain, so to speak, you're not within their jurisdiction, you're within God's jurisdiction, and he has no rate. Um, <laughs> the, um, so it's a question of simply knowing it ahead of time. So I mean, that just, it's important that you have somebody that knows. <laughs> exactly. Is yeah. knowledgable in the theater and knows what you can do on yeah, that, the that's where I was leading. I, 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 the, 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 uh, okay. the, just just one second. That the shops trusted the Dodgers because <coughs> there were there was a time in January and February. I mean, the, the drama behind this show is just as great as what's on stage, <laughs> where every week. Sherman and Michael had Sherman Warner and Michael had to convince, particularly Sherman in this case, the That's shops sure. that the money was there <laughs> to finish the deck. You know, because because of this kind of what was this show? You know, where was the money coming from? It was a very very tricky thing. And these this company has a very good reputation. And to be very candid, they were a little concerned about where the money was coming. So the point is they had to juggle all of these balls in the air, which they did wonderfully. And somehow we were able to convince the shops to keep on working. I, I just want to say, um, you know, people say, well, now that the show is up and running, you know, I, I guess you don't have anything to do in terms of what does a producer really do. And we've talked a lot about, you know, the specifics and the money, but we haven't really said anything about the magic of what it's been like to produce this show. And, you know, Margo and I got to see the most beautiful process of George Wolfe working with these great I don't know if any of you have seen the show, but you know you have heard that our cast is extraordinary. George has had a reputation of doing ensemble pieces and casting his show so that each person is like a mosaic in this beautiful pattern. And then he had Gregory, who was a star who he had not really worked with. 
So he had to take his overall vision, include Gregory, who wanted to have a role as a star, but yet keep him as part of the ensemble so it didn't look like a star vehicle and have the rest of the show be meaningful. We got to sit in the theater. We got to watch them work together. We got to see Greg talk to George about how he felt his talent. George was able to take tap dancing, which at first he thought, well, you know, this is not a tap dancing show. When we were in L.A., we had no tap dancing at all. And tap dancing sometimes has a slightly negative connotation of black people, you know, were tap dancers and that sort of a stereotypical. But Gregory's tap dancing is more of like a jazz music type. And he was able to, George was able to take this and use it along with the jazz music to express his ideas. We brought, we got to see the lighting designer, Jules Fisher, come in and highlight everything. Robin come in and build the set around them. And what we could offer, aside from the money, is a sounding board. We could, when we were gently asked our opinion, be able to say, well, this is a little bit. Gently asked by that. Well, you know, producers don't have this, you know, they're, uh, a lot of creative people don't think that producers know what they're talking about in terms of the creative process. This is process. quite different in, in but, these two producers. But also, but one I, thing, but when, she say, when she was saying about jazz and tap, the one thing you have to finish was that the tap became the idiom of um, how the composer, Jelly Roll Morton, used his fingers with the keys, Gregory uses his feet with whatever to create the deck. The deck. Yeah. I, I, I on, the play, on, on our playwright director. Yeah. 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 I want people and to George know speaks that of the show with the same kind of feeling as you do. It's, it's, exactly it's been a very passionate experience. Like That's what so, I want to know. It's not been just Here's the budget. Here's the designer. You know, we've been working for ten years. Let me pull it It's but been a very passionate. Other than Jean, who, who, at the time that Jean was a theatrical producer, it was no great shakes to have a woman as a theatrical producer because there wasn't that division between the sexes. You did what you did, and if you were successful and qualified, didn't matter. You too. Did you have any resistance because you were women and well, first coming in? To you the know, theater? it's such a hard question to ask in this particular show. Yeah. Um, you know, I've thought about it a lot show. because I've spoken to women's groups about this. I, 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 the reason I find it hard to answer is because I had the weight of Rock and Landisman behind me and the Jujamson Theater Organization. If that weren't there. Would that have been much harder for me because I was a woman? Maybe. But I don't think Rocco's being a man is what gives him that authority. I think it's his position as the head of Jujamson Theatres. And I think that... Uh, we had some I, peculiar experiences in raising money. Well, we had, but everybody <laughs> has. That's everybody, our next, everybody that's everybody has. next that's yes. seminar. Well, they were getting to... <laughs> no, 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 they said right here. I mean, I think everybody talk has about peculiar, peculiar... But I think the point is that, yes, I think there is, there, uh, there is some difference in being a woman. I think that uh, what I have mm -hmm. learned, um, I have learned with this show is there is some difference. I don't think, in the end, I think there's only one rule of thumb. If the product is good, 
it's going to get and on. And you can back it somehow. up. I think just, the, just ha your having raised the question, Isabel, means that there is still a difference. You know, it's sort of like the floor of the Senate. Until there's equal representation for, per population, then we can start talking about senators as senators as opposed to women senators yeah. and the other senators. I mean, if yeah. Margot and Pam were men, you wouldn't be saying, you know, was it hard being a man okay. and a producer? Mm -hmm. Um, what's nice is that the, is, is that Margot and Pam are not the only women producers working in the theater no. now. I think you're um, the only team of women. Well, producers. we just teamed on this. I mean, Heidi Landisman is is, is wonderful. Yes, and but I meant on this as co-producers. Uh, they are the well, general partners yeah. of the show. But uh, Heidi and Elizabeth. What is Jean? What did you want to say? To I, I want to say that when I started, there was great opposition to men, so I never. From men? Uh, from men? From men. Yeah. That I started by not letting my name appear too much. <laughs> I never sent out a release. Gene Dalrymple, director of the Light Opera Company, announces, I would simply say, City Center's next production will be, and so forth and so on. And I would ask Newbold Morris, who was chairman of our board, to make the announcement for me and not to mention my name. And I did that for many years. It's true. As a kid, when I, when I, you know, before I was even 10, my parents, we lived here in New York. My parents take my brother and me in to see the shows that you put on. And we knew all the names of all the people who were involved because almost, uh, you know, every, every month there was a Sunday we would come in and see a show at City Center. And it was only when I started watching these seminars that I knew that you were the person responsible. Yeah, you didn't change your name to G-E-N-E. Yeah, I was going to say. I really think that's only a passing question. I think in the theater, uh, it's a very bottom line of I don't think there's any feeling, or very, very little feeling at all. Uh, between the sexes on, on that. But let's get back to money now. Yeah, well, there's one, I'd like to, as we do, uh, if I may, just this one thing, because it, not to be too moralistic about this, but I wanted to just uh, sort of put a tag on what Michael is saying. There's one word that, that you mentioned earlier, and that is trust. And I, and, and I think for a general manager, would you speak to that a second, Michael? Because I do think we've got unions, you've got shops, you've got a lot of people, and wouldn't what would wouldn't you say that that has tremendous amount that that basic one word in terms of your position and I, I suppose yours too, Gene, is is a critical element in dealing with with the. I think that I, think that, that, <laughs> I don't know. <coughs> it's, a, it's a funny word to bring up. Trust, Trust and character. The fact is, what okay. happens, and, and I must say, Margot talks to to the. The, the awkwardness of basically the money not all being in and you're having to spend it simultaneously. And I must say, that's not just something unique with this. The fact is, as you know, in limited partnerships, you can't sort of spend it until it's all in. So even if you've got four million and your budget's five and the four million's in the bank earning interest, you're not theoretically allowed to touch it before you get the last million. Um, in this case, it was sort of down to the wire. And uh, yeah, look, I, I, think, I, think, I think trust and leaps of faith um, happen from the beginning of any of these processes, whether it's picking someone you've only met to do something, whether it's if you've ever worked with Gregory and you hope he doesn't kill you in the process, you decide to go with him, whether it's George Wolfe, you've really never done a show with George, but you've seen his work, he may be a son of a bitch. The fact is, they're, they're, I think whether it's interpersonal relationships that happen, um, 
you don't get a chance to regularly sort of test those things. And down the line, everybody is working in this unbelievably intense situation where there's a deadline which is very clear and vivid, which will not go away. And especially when you're butting up against the Tonys, um, you really can't put off and put off and put off if something doesn't happen. Um, you damn well better trust everybody because um, uh, if, uh, if there isn't any or if it's lacking, and I think we've seen it, then carnage happens and the work obviously and, and severely suffers. Um, speaking to, you know... Is this any different? very trustworthy. Was this that much different from any other production that you've done on the question of monies, where you have to juggle with the, the shops and the, and the unions and the stars? Uh, is this any different, this situation? Does this I think every show, is, I think every show is different. I, I think this, this is one where, and I must say it, um, it's like zero-based budgeting. The idea that one really even brings up something that might be talked about in, in economics and in, in a theater discussion is bizarre because no one ever thinks of this really as business. Um, the fact is, the fact is, it's it's it a, is it's a most of business like this. It certainly is, and it needs to be more. And more and, I mean, unfortunately, it, it needs to it needs to uh, clearly share it with some of us. The, the fact is, when someone says we've only got this much money, um, it's either a benefit or a curse. The fact is, um, it seems to me in this case, it was a real benefit. It it um, it allows. Producing, as I've always contended, is not about saying yes. It's about knowing when and how to say no. Mm -hmm. um, if, uh, <clears throat> if indeed one knows how much money you have and that's all, um, there's, you're, it's, it's easier to say no. Um, the fact is there, you can't say yes because there isn't money to sort of save you. Um, so um, I don't know. They were, th there was, this was unusual. There was a real passion about it, and I think this was a show that was, this was a dark horse, no pun intended. I mean, this was a toughie and had, had taken a long time to do. And in the midst of a season I think we'd all recognize as one of the sort of most crowded, exciting seasons we've had in a while. And the idea that this sort of bubbled up in the end um, uh, and happened um, is a credit to everybody uh, in the face of people, you know, I mean... It, when did you start raising money for this? And well, how did we you? Had a, it was a very unique situation in that our partnership papers... Um, uh, our partnership papers were not ready until the middle of December, December 14th, I think. And you are not permitted to raise money before your partnership papers are complete. In fact, when we had a workshop... You just explain that a little bit, the partnership papers. What, what is that? In, in, in? These are the limited partnership papers that are approved by the Attorney That General's have to be office. approved by the Attorney General. And this show had... Um, it also had a unique fundraising history. I mean, we, we had partnerships that had been formed to do various workshops, including the, the workshop that was done out in California. At the taper. At the taper. And these were rolling into the master partnership. So it meant we couldn't do the, the easiest level of attorney general review in New York, which is just go to 35 people and send them the partnership documents after you're all done. We had to actually get a pre-clearance from them, do a somewhat more complicated document. And it, it takes a while. It took a while. And we got really stuck in the middle because what happened was that our workshop that we had downtown in November, the papers were not finished, right, was announced in the press, which made it sound like a backers audition. And so the Attorney General's office sent somebody down to every, to every to single presentation we did, three, four, whatever we did, and made sure that Pam and I made no pitch Yes, no money. asking for money. And uh, they turned like into the biggest board. fans of the yeah, show. They, it was <laughs> one of their better assignments. It was for like house arrest or something. <laughs> and um, so there we were, December 14th, 
We had, we had to go this season. There was no question we would lose Greg, we would lose George. This was the season. We had to do it. So we had, and we had to go into rehearsal February 13th. So we had between December 14th and February 13th to raise approximately $4.2 million. $800,000 had been raised for previous production. And two <laughs> weeks of that was obviously over the Christmas holidays. And um, it was... It was the most horrifying time of my entire life. I spent, uh, I felt like the girl on broadcast news who would wake up every morning and cry. I would go to sleep every night and cry. And John Braleo, who was representing Polygram, one of our investors, said to me in January, the last nine years will look like nothing to the next six weeks. And he was absolutely right. It was just So you really say that that's just I want to say a little piece. It took nine years to get where you all are right right now. And nine weeks to finalize And nine weeks to raise that money over a Christmas holiday for a show written and directed by somebody who had never done a commercial show, let alone a musical, um, about a, a difficult theme. Um, and I don't know. I mean, you know, it's, it's a miracle. That's all I can That's say. That's why it was so important to have it? Greg. Yeah. Well, because, you know, both Margot and I believed in the material. Right. We believed in the material. We had a very successful production at the Mark Tabor Forum. But Broadway is, I have to say this, but it's not about art. It's about, a, and it has, and, and now, in the recent times, uh, Broadway is maintained by a national, a national audience. It's not just about people in New York that go to the theater. And we knew, although we felt Greg was right and we loved Greg and he had been part of the pro- uh, process, we really needed that hook to give the show a certain credibility that it didn't have from George and the material and the character and all that. That's why it was so important. Commerciality. Well, both yeah. credibility. I mean, Gregory. People knew Gregory Hines. They knew that they were going to get a certain commodity. They were right. going to get tap dancing and singing. He was a they star. Didn't, they didn't yeah. know what Act else they were going to get. Gregory was right. going to get them in, and then Jelly's Last Gem was going to was Kill. going to send them out, right. mm-hmm. advertising missionaries. You know, to tell people it's Gregory. Uh, Gregory Hines is great. But the <coughs> show is great. And also, also, also we had had that. this workshop, and although it was not used to raise money. I I reiterate, Uh, a lot of people in the business were there, and the word of mouth mouth was very good. The other approach that I used was, because we had so little time to raise the money, I went for very large blocks of money, corporate investors who could put in a million dollars, three quarters of a million dollars, half a million dollars. We did, of course, have some... Uh, quite a few individual investors. I'm going to hold you right there because we're going to come back to that. We have to take a break now and we're going to continue on the raising of the money because without that we can't see Gregory Hines and Jelly's Last Gem. So just stand up and take a breath and we're coming right back again. Don't go away. This is CUNY TV, Channel 75. We're continuing with the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. 
which are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today's seminars is on the production. The producers of that wonderfully exciting show, Jelly's Last Jam, and the production team that made it possible to bring it to Broadway. Here with us is Jean Dalrymple and George White, who is going to continue the discussion. We left off on where did you get the money? Yes, everybody <laughs> loves money. Uh, and, uh, maybe you could, or you could help us uh, tell us a little bit. We got started on how the money was raised through the I'd like and how it wasn't. I'd like to go back also to workshops. Because you, you talked that a lot of people came to see you and there had many workshops. Is that a costly project? Because this is the norm now with shows. Yeah, it cost about $140,000 to do the workshop downtown. We had to get front money for that. You can only have, correct me, four front money investors. <laughs> and uh, we had actually two, we had so many front money people um, or early investors. We had a 1985 workshop which was actually had nothing to do with this production except that Gregory was in it and Luther did some of the Luther Henderson did some of the orchestrations and arrangements. Um, those people came in as limited partners and they are the first this has happened before, but they are the first people who invested as a limited partner in a workshop that have actually folded into a Broadway limited partnership. So they they have a continuing interest in the show. And have gotten some money back. And have gotten some money back. <laughs> And then we had the Mark Taper Forum production, which we had to enhance. Uh, that happened in the spring of 1991. And we had to enhance that by $350,000. So we had to have another limited partnership. And that did not star Gregory Hines. That was with Oba no. Babatunde as... But we actually had two... Yeah. Remember, we, went, we raised money for a second workshop that we which didn't Which we use. returned. <laughs> we actually returned What happens money. with money that you didn't use? We returned it. We gave it, it back. <laughs> we were the only... You'd be amused. The Attorney General was as... Stunned by that fact as anyone else that we called and said, what, what do we do? What documents are there for us to file to give this money back? And they, it took them a week to sort of say, producers are giving money back. And this could be the subject it, of your next musical. That's yes. right. That's right. I, uh, and, yes. and so then um, uh, we, we raised that money. Now, that was institutional money. That's where we sort of began for the tape. What do you we mean had, by institutional? Well, theater owners. We had Rock Rocco, as I said again, was our biggest supporter, and he put in some money. He got the Schuberts to put in some money. Uh, we then had, I have a very wonderful investor who has supported most of my recent activities who also put in some money, and, um, and I put in some money. And Isn't that rare? But that's the... Uh, you know, I don't believe in that. I, I, I know people say you're not a real producer if you have to put your own money in, but I think that's completely baloney. What other biz business can you start and try and engage people and interest people in and say, well, gee, I want you to invest, but I don't believe in it enough to invest in it myself. I've well, you know, there, there are two ridiculous. ways. We, we could have looked for a person that had a lot of money that would have backed us, given us... $100,000, $200,000 for some interest, but we didn't. We chose to, actually, we didn't know anybody like that. Yeah, I mean, somebody had come along for money, but, you know, so, I mean, <laughs> you know, so most of it up until, up until the, the basic Broadway money is Morgan and I both put in a lot of personal money. That is the only way that we have been able to have the show go along. And it's, it's one of the unusual things about being a producer when people come and say, you know, well, 
what do you need as a producer? Unfortunately, one of the things, well, not unfortunately, but reality is you do have to have a certain amount of personal assets to kind of keep going until you get up to the major point because you can't just say to somebody well you need option money you, you need you need to pay your author fifteen hundred dollars uh, you need to pay your writer five thousand dollars you can't you you know you need to be able to just write a check and to go out and raise that and give somebody something in the in the in the show it, it's too difficult so you need a certain amount of money just to keep you going personally. We it speaks, to that, it speaks to that subject of passion, too, that you were talking about before. You know, Michael said it's, show business is not really run like a business. You know, God forbid to a certain extent that it, it, it ever is. Because the point is, if you're willing to put your money where your mouth is, it says something about what it is that you're trying to put up on the stage. Now, that may not make great business sense, but that is sort of one of the founding uh, pr uh, premises of, of, of show business. You know, you've got to care about the thing, and if you care enough about it to put yourself on the line, then and you really care about it. And investors ask you, do you yes, have any of your own ask, money in the show? They always ask you that question. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. I think and it's does it change in their reaction to you? Yes absolutely, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> I mean, as I say, you know, most of our investors, or many of our, or, uh, the largest investors, were corporations, and that is different, but even they are interested in that. Yeah. Um, Did you get those in that six weeks from hell that you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, six weeks from hell, where the the way that worked after the after the workshop in the in the fall was that we had you always need a cornerstone investor and a theater ownership a theater owner is is a very good cornerstone. So so Rocco said we will commit a million dollars. Jujamson will commit a million dollars. We had eight hundred thousand that we had already raised for all these other productions, but they had to be part of the capitalization. So at that point, we then had a million eight. Um, then we, TV Asahi, uh, a Japanese company, I had brought to Jujamson the year before to become a kind of partner in their projects. And so they continued their support of both Jujamson and me by putting up a significant amount of money half a million dollars. Then an, an individual, the same individual who had been supportive, or actually it's a company, but it's one person who had been supportive in California, came in for uh, uh, three quarters of a million dollars. And then we had this, uh, you know, this big million dollar chunk that we needed to get, and we so went... To bring up to the five million. Yes, and we went to... Um, we decided because of the nature of this show, because it was about music, I mean, that was the impulse, the impetus behind it, because it was very cutting edge and contemporary, that it might be the kind of thing that a music company would like to get or entertainment company would like to get involved with. Um, obviously, TV Asahi kept the Japanese rights. That was their interest. Rocco, Jujamson, the theatrical interest. So then we went to the last, the last big player, and that was Polygram, Diversified Who had Entertainment. Who the contact there? Uh, that was the same person who had introduced me to TV Asahi a year before, uh, brought this person in. It was an and attorney from a big uh, legal. Mm -hmm. And um, right. they had this, uh, John Share, who runs the Polygram Diversified Entertainment, had, had had conversations and actually had dealt with Rocco before. They had done somebody on Broadway, some um, performer. performer. And... Um, but then began this in incredible thing. We, uh, the last money in always gets what it wants. Because there you are. It's the end of January. You're going into rehearsal in middle of January. You're going into rehearsal February 13th. And you're a million short now. I've been trying to We're a million short. We're a million short. So 
incomes polygram goes over all of our deals, theater deal, the deal with Greg, the deal with the authors, and says, no, none of these will work. Now, these deals had taken, Michael, a year and a half to do. This won't work. Sorry, we're not putting it. The only way we'll put in a million dollars is if we do, if you do X, Y, and Z. And so began this incredibly painful process of basically having to say to all of the other players involved, uh, this show will not happen unless we do this. And bless them all, they came around and did it. But I mean, it, was, it was... At this was point, Jim, you were tearing your hair out, I suppose. Are you in on this process? We all were. <coughs> yeah. We all were. It had taken eight years, in some cases, to, to put all of these agreements and arrangements and deals to rest. And it, it really was a, a blanket re-examination of all of them. And well, at the, I, I the just, 11th hour. I just want to say that, you know, even with these institutional people, we still didn't have our capitalization, and we had run out of big chunks of money. Remember, like, you know, we're in a recession now. So people that were writing bigger checks were writing smaller checks. So finally, we were down, and we still needed money. We decided, look, we, we're just going to have to go to the smaller investor, and what we're going to have to do is we're just going to have to raise it in smaller, smaller, even though we didn't want to take which the time. Which is what you did. Which is at the end, what we were doing. We, and so we actually have, like, the old-fashioned angels in this show that are, you know, that, that, are, that put in small amount of money. But when did, that's the last question, when did Herb Alpert come in? And well, I thought he was the last, to, but, last no, no, co-producer. No, that was a different... No? I want to get to the theater on. now. Because, Jude Jansen, that was, a, yeah. was the Virginia Theater your first choice? And, and how important well, it was, the, was it? That was the other thing. I mean, Rocco, there are two things Rocco did that were, three things that were pivotal. First was the commitment of a million dollars. Second, there was no theater available on Broadway. None. And basically, he, he and, and the Schuberts were part of the uh, City of Angels producing team, and they were coming to the sort of the end of their run. I mean, they were. They were winding down. They probably could have run, I don't know, I mean, if there hadn't been something else there, maybe they could have said, hang, hung on. But uh, Rocco cleared the decks for us. So that was the second thing he did. Got us a space. We wouldn't have been able to come in, and then the whole project would have fallen apart. And the third thing was the meeting we had with Polygram in which he had to renegotiate his deal. And he was the first one who had to commit to do that. And I remember watching him on the phone when he was talking to the head of Polygram. And that this was it. He was going to say yes or no. And um, I think they need lawyers in here <laughs> more than producers. It was the yes. theater owner and it was the star. Mm -hmm. And the star, Gregory, also had to renegotiate. And it, it, was, it was Gregory's, you know, dedication to the project and to our, our, our producing that, you know, you made it possible. About that you've already paid back some money. I want to get back to that, but I want Jean, who seems like she wants to say something about producing. I started producing for John Golden, and John Golden always used his own money and he used his own money in the year when we had the big market crash in 1929. And I said, John, what are we going to do? And he said, nothing. He said, I have another couple of million. <laughs> I, I think people should know here that this lady on my left leaves us all in the dust. How many shows have you produced? Well... Over a hundred, surely, maybe a hundred and fifty. Probably. So I think that, that's something. You just slipped, Margot, on um, that you've paid some of this money back. 
We've paid 30% back. We look to pay another 10%. That's not a slip. I'm glad I'm glad it was. You mean that you bought that on purpose? Yes, we we hope to be at least 50% recouped by the end of the calendar year, which is only nine months into the run. And if you hadn't gotten the Tony, did you have any plan? Well, <laughs> Which we didn't get the best we musical the Tony, Tony but musical. we got the best but the best actor. All those nominations. Yes, yes. Um, we just, you know, we really believe in the power of this show, and we believe that eight times a week it thrills audiences, and they're our best advertisement, and they're going to sell it for us. It makes our job very easy, knowing that each night there's fourteen hundred little potential advertising agencies sitting in all those seats. <laughs> and every night when the curtain comes down, they act as missionaries for Jelly's Last Gem, and they each tell ten people to go and see the show. And maybe if that hooks up with something else that they've heard about it from somebody else, that'll help close the sale. There That's is, how shows run. There is one, one other quick thing I wanted to say. And Pam, uh, you know, you, we talked about it at the break a little bit. Uh, the show is open, it's running, it's making money, it's paying back. So what do you do? Do you go to the beach? Well, you know, it's interesting because people come up to me now and say, well, now that it's running, gee, what do you do? And then buckets of money are floating in and, you know, what's your next project? And I say that, you know, I've never been busier because um, it's, it's like a restaurant. When the owner is there and runs the restaurant and watches the cook, and then the restaurant is terrific. And if you go and you leave it and you leave it to other people who have other things to do, I feel like the quality of, of the production suffers. So what we both do every week is, well not every week, every other week we have a big meeting, an advertising meeting, we watch our advertising, we try to see if, if the money that we're spending is reaching an audience, we're constantly looking for um, promotional opportunities, working with our press agent, working with the advertising agency to try to come up with creative ideas. Um, I go to the theater two or three times a week. I like to look at the physical um, space. Uh, Margot uh, got a, a, some wonderful artists to hang up some original art. We had beautiful quilts. We have beautiful photographs in the lobby. We have our 11 Tony nominations. Uh, in case things are chipped or... I mean, nobody looks at that. You know, the theater manager kind of just runs the theater and makes sure there are no major collapses and all that. But it really takes that personal effort. I like to stand around backstage so that um, the cast knows that they have an access to somebody if they want to complain, uh, if they want to say something, I'm there, I can take down notes, I can say I can talk to somebody, see the company manager, I talk to the box office people, I find out, you know, what's going on. You don't know what's going on sitting in your office. You're going to find room. out from some of the questioners what's, what they want to know from you, Pamela. Would you come up, please? Hello, my name is Paul Gray Butler, and I have a question for the producers of the show. Gregory Hines really embodies his character, but was there anyone else you had in mind for the part besides him? Hmm. That's well, he didn't play it in L.A. Uh, somebody else played it in L.A. And the show was never... Uh, Gregory was a wonderful support during our many years of trying to get this through, but he was not... Um, this was not a show tailored... This was a show written independent of Greg starring in it. We certainly hoped he would star in it, and we will be faced with the situation of having to replace him because even Gregory, as wonderful as he is, has to get on with his life eventually. Um, so we're looking at some people now. I mean, there isn't another star to answer your... It's one of those magical things where when you have the right role, 
with the right performer, somehow the, 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 the total is bigger, the sum of the parts is bigger, and that's really what happened. The combination of joy. But you're going Greg, to need that same yes. magical thing to take Gregory's Yes. Home. Well, well, we will. Well, yes, that's somebody different. We're hoping All right. we'll do it again. <laughs> what can I say? Yeah. <laughs> Everett Sherman question from Margot. Knowing what you know now, yes. <laughs> how would the production process, how could it be more efficient? That's a good question. Uh, we, you know, the, the 11 years, I, I, it really was my, you know, my bachelor's, my master's, my PhD, and my postdoctoral degree. I mean, there are a lot of mistakes that, that, or things I would do differently. And I think the major one was to find, to find the right person who had to. to conceive of this show. The man who, or the woman who had the vision, in this case it was George Wolfe. We, we took a long time to get to George. It took us till 1987, and partially thanks to, to Richard for that, who alerted me to his work down at the public. But I think that's the, that was the biggest, once that happened, 1987, that's five years, that isn't that long, given that George was doing a lot of other things, and we had a, 1991, we had a full production of the taper. So I think that would be my, that change. Yeah. Hi, my name's Joseph. My question's for the producers. Could you explain what a royalty pool is and you have them? I think you should ask the general manager that. Okay, okay. Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I can answer a little better. Yeah, it's a, a, a fairly a recent um, uh, new configuration of how to pay the creative team there weekly in a manner that doesn't cause you to lose more money when you're already losing money um, than, you, than, you, than, than you would. So basically it's a downside protection. Um, theoretically, when you're doing well, the royalty recipients are receiving at least as much as they would have on their original sort of contract or even more. But when you're doing badly, and this is a season where everybody talks about last week and the next week is the worst one, and you look for the one part? or two that's Who good. Part in the royalty pool? Everyone, really, and, and that's the rule that basically it applies if all royalty recipients take part in it. Event. So authors, directors, choreographers, producers, designers, orchestrators um, all take producers part in it. Producers, you're in that as well? Oh, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of outside the salary. What about people, right? Right. Sometimes. Sometimes not. Thank you. Hi, my name is Frank Shower. My question is for Marta Lyon. Um, how does your, what, what is on Broadway now compare with your original artistic idea? That's a good question. Uh, it's everything I could have dreamed of and more. I mean, my first, I read my first grant to the statement I made with Lynn in 1981, and it was something about, you know, a, a fabric, a musical that was an interwoven fabric of dance, dialogue, and music to uh, present the culture or represent the culture from which jazz was born. Mm -hmm. And what could I, I, can't, I couldn't ask for anything more, plus the wonderful kind of ideas that George has, has uh, brought to the project. So it's a dream come true, literally. I was on that panel. <laughs> yeah, you were. Yeah, so was Charlie Strauss. I know. <laughs> All right, my name is Howard Frazier, and I'm an outsider to the theater, except well, I'm inside the audience. Uh, I got a question for Mr. David, and uh, perhaps also for the press agent. Uh, about what uh, project management techniques are used in the business of the theater? Uh, do you optimize press coverage in any way? 
Do you schedule resources? Do you have can't charge that type of thing? God, expressions I don't think anyone ever used applying to the theater. We are, the theater, I think, is is clearly 30 years behind sort of business in general. Uh, um, the fact is, I think people are looking now to catch up. Um, we thought we discovered television advertising about 15 years ago. I mean, people have been doing it for some time. Um, and I think that, that applies across the board. Um, we utilize computers a lot in our office, and I must say that's, that's not usual, although it's becoming more usual. And indeed, we attempt to make logic out of the illogical. We look at what happened last year, we look at each week, we basically try and calculate trends, and I must say they're, they're fairly clearly there. Um, but it's, uh, I think the, the theater remains art and is catching up in commerce, and I suppose the hope is that it'll never become what you know, just like television is. But in fact, it's much more about passion than it's about than it's about the business. And the fact is, um, having too much of one would be all about giving people what we think they want as opposed to what we love. And the fact is, the idea about this, it seems to me, is to do something you love and hope you can infect others with the thing that infected and, you. And also, uh, quickly, um, it seems as if people today are not experimenting with the theater. They're not saying, I want to go to this and this and this. So you try to make your show an event. Um, basically, um, things that we would attempt to do is to do it not in theater coverage. Let's say, in, uh, have when, when certain Tanya Pinkins, one of our co-stars, happens to be in All My Children, and she's a regular there. Yeah, say, and, and she won the Tony and every other award on Broadway as Best Newcomer, Best Supporting Actress. So what you do with that, you try to get soap opera press. You try to get sports press. You, you have Gregory Hines sing the Star Spangled Banner at a, at a Met game or at a Nick game. You try to bring in an audience that wouldn't necessarily see a show on Broadway and right. introduce it to them. What about at the beginning? Who handles the group shows Do you, of getting people in? Group sales. Group, group sales. We have several group sales organizations working on it. Is that organic? We have several group sales organizations and working you, on it. What about package tours? What about the, yeah. doing theater package bus and airplane tours? Who handles that? What, it, what division does that come under? Well, we've actually hired somebody who started a new company just dedicated to that. Uh -huh. um, that's who's handling ours. And I don't know if they come through Janet as well. I don't well, know. I think, I mean, really, I mean, we've got now three different organizations sort of dealing with three different kinds of demographic. They're sort of the standard, the traditional theater goer. Them because it's only recently that I think right. that the theater has gone out to get customers. Right. Say, normal has been, here's a show, this is where you see it in ABCs and right. come buy tickets. We have a very aggressive position with that. We, we, we notice that not only do we have an African-American community where we have a very vital uh, group sales initiative, but also a European travel. I think you have time for one more question. Okay. Uh, my question is to the producers. In starting as a, a career as a producer, do you feel that it's better to be working in all the different areas of the theater, working your way to producing, or do you feel that it would be better to start producing on smaller scales, working larger that way? Well, I, I think it's a very personal, actually. I think it's a kind of personal consideration. If you can... Well, it's good to get to know all the all the different people. As Michael said, it's it's a very loosely uh, a loose a conglomerate of people, and it's great if you can meet press agents, if you can meet advertising people. But you also uh, have to support yourself. I mean, when young people come and ask me, "Can I just be a producer?" I know that most people need 
to have a job so that they can work. And because it's, it, it takes a long time to get money back from something you do, if ever. If you know, you're lucky if you do a show that returns money to you. So, um, you know, I would say, uh, you know, if you can work in the field at something while you're earning money and start producing that, to me, which is the best way process. to do it. Yeah. Can I pick up on that just a second? Gene, you've done about it all, including acting, and a couple of years ago, I think you started acting. Uh, what, what would you say about, uh, about that? I mean, that's a good question for you, too, since you've done a lot of other things. Well, I got into producing by doing publicity for other shows and for producers. And finally, John Golden wanted me to work for him and learn how to be a producer. And what I had done was write a play for myself, and he was going to produce it. And all of a sudden he said, I don't want you to play that part because you'll make a hit in it, and then you'll be an actress. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you are an actress. I think you're a producer. You <laughs> ask one round question, one round table question are you into any new projects is there anything that you do have and, and that you can tell us about Mike why don't you start I know you've got the Dodgers are going to reopen Ebbets Field any minute we have a lot of stuff in the world yeah. we've got Guys and Dolls and Broadway and Secret Garden running and then we've got a show called Tommy which is coming in in the spring mm -hmm. how, how far along are they well Tommy's well along we'll be in in April Pamela Margaret? Well, I, I'm basically concentrating. We're putting a road show together mm -hmm. for next fall. When will that go up? Wow. Jelly next fall. Mm -hmm. And Margaret, you'll be involved with that. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm. I'm. There are two other projects that I'm working on right now, which. I'll know in about two hours. You, I know, will continue going on and on and on. Well, the next thing, I'm working with Fran and Barry Weisler on their production of My Fair Lady, starring Richard Chamberlain. And Coin goes on and on and on. We go on and on. We're working on that production. We're doing The Goodbye Girl for Broadway this year. Larry Kramer play that just opened, The Destiny of Me. Interrupt you. This happens all the time, and I must be known as the most rude person on Broadway, but... I can't help it. There's just so much and so much good things that come out of these seminars and people are saying so much that uh, I, I have to stop them because we would have to have a whole day and perhaps even more than that to get all the information that these people have to give to us. I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the American Theatre Wing, which brings you these, this group of seminars coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York located right in the heart of Times Square. Thank you very much for being here.